With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the 1865 Nottingham Forest podcast and our first monthly roundup of the season. We're looking back over Forest's first month back in the Premier League. We'll be talking results, good and bad, the approach that the club has taken in the transfer market, the choices that Steve Cooper has made in recent games and also talk about his future. And we will also cover that Bournemouth meltdown. We've also got Jeremy Davis later on with his sketch, but now it's on with the pod. As you can probably tell, Rich isn't here with us this month. It's Stephen in the chair, and I'm joined by today's panel. We've got Baz. Hello, Baz. Hiya. We've got Tom Newton. Hello. Evening. And we've got Adam. Hello. Hello. So we're looking back on the opening month of the Premier League and for Forest, their return to the Premier League, the first six games. As the table stands after six matches, Forrester 19th, having won one, drawn one and lost four. Four points from six games in the relegation zone, but it's obviously early days. How have you all assessed Forrest's start to the season and start to Premier League life? Baz, I'll come to you first. Um, there's been promising moments, but we do look like a side that doesn't know each other, which, um, I mean, yeah, there's been bits of it where I've been really impressed with how quickly we seem to have gelled. And then there's been other moments where it's just all sort of fallen to pieces a little bit. And I guess that's kind of to be expected, but we need to to get something up and running pretty quick, I think. Tom, would you agree? Um, Yeah, pretty much. I think... The first game against Newcastle was a bit of a rabbit in a headlights moment. Then we really, um, even though it was lucky at times, thought we played pretty well against um, West Ham 
I think Awani had a really, really good game. Well, in the 60-odd minutes he was on, and gave uh, Kurt Zuma a real uh, run around. And I mean, on another day, West Ham might have come away with uh, three points. I mean, they hit the ball um, post and they had a penalty save, etc. But then Everton, I thought it was a, it was a matter of uh, two points uh, dropped. And then Spurs, I think, on the whole, we played pretty well. We're just lacking that cutting edge up front. Uh, Man City, and I don't want to chuck the towel in, and I don't want to be too critical, but I thought a few of the goals were preventable. I thought we rolled over a bit too easily on the night. Then the Bournemouth game, I thought uh, it's a real disappointing result at the weekend but uh, I think in moments we've done all right then moments there's still a lot of work to do yeah moments of promise Adam what would you say has been the story so far from your point of view um I think to be honest the points total uh so going from the start of the season if you said to me by the end of August or after the Bournemouth game even but the points total was about what I'd expect it to be. Um, I didn't. I thought West Ham would be a bit more like the West Ham of last season. So I thought they'd come here and it'd be a lot tougher and they'd probably beat us and we wouldn't get anything out of that game. Um, and then obviously I thought we'd beat Bournemouth. So I think it swings and roundabouts for, to me. And the points total was about right, though. Um, but it, it's been an OK start. I'm certainly not panicking yet. We've got a lot of players to bed in. We've got a lot, you know, Steve Cooper doesn't know his best team yet. You know, there's a very, very long way to go. So there's no panic from my end yet. And that seems to be the message to remember is that it has just been six games. And already in those six games, a lot has happened. We've seen the good and the bad of Forest, I think, in that period. And there's positive signs, there's signs where the, the, there might be some concerns as well but going back to the beginning and that first game at Newcastle I think we all knew that it was going to be a tough game away at St James's Park but given how how well Newcastle played on that day and they were more than worthy winners Forrest recovered well didn't they to come back the following week West Ham at home which again is another difficult game but they bounced back from that defeat at Newcastle so well and obviously got their first Premier League points, Tom. Yeah, you've got to remember that. I think since October last year, Newcastle have only lost twice at St James's Park and that was against Man City and Spurs. And with the players they brought in in January with uh, Gamaris and a few others, they've made St James's Park a formidable uh, place to go. Um, so um, and then in the game after at home, where the um, sit-ground um, was bouncing. Um, yeah, we did recover really well. Then the week after that, we played um, Everton. Um, so, yeah, I think um, start of the season, uh, after the Newcastle game, I think we did show real promise. It's just the last week has probably dented our positivity um, since, like I said, the, um, the three games where we've lost against Spurs, even though we played really well, we just lacked cutting edge Man City where we kind of rolled over then sat this game. So, but yeah, there is a bit of positivity there. It's just that we just need to like polish up on certain areas like I mentioned earlier in the pod. 
Baz, is there an argument to be had that Forrest could and perhaps should have more points on the board at this stage? I'm thinking the the game at Everton where Forrest took the lead quite late on, but still managed to concede and came away with just the points rather than three. And then Bournemouth, another example where they're two goals ahead and they let the game slip away from them. Could Forrest realistically be looking at a mid-table spot instead of being in the relegation zone at this point? I think you could say that, but I think that would be pretty optimistic because I mean, everyone knows Everton is struggling. But um, but and and yeah, Bournemouth beat us last season, and I mean we're we're a brand new side playing against them, so they were better than us last season. Um, I mean. It was close, but they were better than us last season. So for us to suddenly magically become better than them and us to expect them to roll over and give us three points, is it, it's a bit of wishful thinking, really. I think I agree with Adam. We're, we're kind of actually, we, we might not have got the Bournemouth result when we maybe wanted it, but we got the West Ham result instead. So it's we're kind of where we want to be, where, where you should expect to be if you're, if you're realistic about it and not blinkered about it. I mean, there is stuff to worry about, but I think, yeah, I think we're, 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 we can't really complain too much about where we are. Tom, you wanted to come in? Yeah, this week's going to be massive for Steve Cooper because it's, I think it's the first time he's had eight days to work with these players, better them in, new systems, uh, tactics, probably a slightly different way of playing if plan A or plan B is not working, etc. So this week's going to be uh, massive. And yeah, like as he says, there is still um, bits to be worried about. Um, but like I said, we're bedding in this new team. A bit of perspective is that we play 16 games before the World Cup and 22 games after the World Cup. So there's still a lot of points to play for. Um, but it, I think we should, there might be like worrying signs at the moment, but if this is still going on in six to eight weeks time and we haven't improved, then we've probably got more justification to worry about where we're going. But at the moment, uh, yeah, this week's going to be massive. Steve Cooper. So if he can really like use this time really well, then the next two games you might have six points on the board, and this conversation might be a distant memory. And and obviously what's happening on social media. So yeah, football's got that thing where you might lose a couple, but you get a win on the board, and everybody's bouncing again. So um, so we'll move on to Leeds on Monday and see where we go from there. And it's easy to forget that Forrest did play three games in six days with Spurs, Man City and Bournemouth all in quite quick succession. And I know the saying in football is you want the game to come around as soon as possible at your next game so you can get that defeat out of your system. And if it was in the championship, we probably would have a game on Tuesday night where we could right the wrongs of Bournemouth, if you like. But Another thing is that... um... They might not be physically, well, they will be physically drained, but they could be mentally drained after that game at City last week where you've got Haaland, uh, Rodri, Cancelo, um, Foden giving you the runaround for like 90 minutes and not having much of the ball. It's like, it can be a bit demoralising. So, But like I says, it's um, eight days since um, Saturday's game where we can really work on things. Adam, the two games against the top four teams or expected top four teams in Spurs and Man City that Forrest had back to back were very different in, in a lot of ways. 
not so much in the results, of course, because Forrest lost both of the games, but the approach to both games differed, didn't it? I think the Spurs game, Forrest seemed more content to attack and take the game to the opposition, whereas against Man City, they set up more conservatively. Now, Harry Kane is Harry Kane. You you don't need to give him much time or space for him to score goals against you, and he'll punish you for, even if you're playing well, he'll find space and he'll find the ball and he'll stick it away, and that can be the game lost. Man City, again, they've got incredible individuals. Haaland did us a lot of damage with his hat-trick, but did we play into Man City's hands by being as conservative as we were? Or actually, was that a sensible approach, given that, one, they're an incredible team with incredible individuals, and two, we were away from home? Um, I think for me, to be honest, the Tottenham game, you know, I saw a lot of negativity after the game and I couldn't understand it at all. I think we played really well against Tottenham. Um, I think we gave them a really good game. And look, look, against the top six sides, I mean, let's let's try and be realistic, right? Giving them a good game, you know, is the best you're going to do. You might get a point off them, fine, but giving them a good game is probably the most you can do. I felt like against Man City, although we did settle fairly conservatively, I think you've also got to remember, I think they were knackered. I mean, they, they looked, they went into the game, I mean, they gave absolutely everything against Spurs. I feel like it was so much into that performance and, you know, a lot of players absolutely running themselves into the ground against Tottenham. And I, I, it felt like the Man City game. We were, look, we're never going to go there and get a result, right? But I do in my heart of hearts think that if there was a week between the Spurs game and the Man City game, we get beat 2-0, 3-0. I don't think it's six. I think it's more just mentally and physically drained after the Spurs game. And it was too much for us playing City. And with Man City, I said to a few people before the game, you're going to get one of two Man Cities. You're going to get a Man City where ultimately they, they're all right. They're in first gear, second gear. They'll beat you one or two nil. That's more about them than it is you. Or you'll get a Man City that are right at the top of their game, right on it. And they were. They were right at the top of the game, right on it. And Erling Haaland at this point in time, it's not really disputable as the best striker in world football. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't even need a half chance to score against you. He'll be in the right position. The way he holds off Worrell for the first goal, like he's not even there. Worrell's a big, strong lad. Haaland just puts his arm across and it's like, you're not getting this ball, I'm getting there first. And it's hard. They're elite. Man City away is the toughest fixture in world football, Barnum, right? To think we'd go there and, you know, win one or two nil or get a point and stuff is very, very optimistic. I just think that mentally and physically, I don't think we would have got beat six and eleven at the Tottenham game a few games prior, a few days prior. Yeah, if you look at the set again, they played Palace. Um, was it the Saturday before? And I was talking to a mate who's Man City fan, and even so, though he said in the second half he was pretty awful. In the first half, he probably didn't do any different to what Palace did, and they scored from an own goal and a cross. And then we've played them, and Pep would have said to him keep it tight, don't give them anything. And that was a ruthless Manchester City. But then, and like he says, they're probably like physically drained from the Spurs game. But then if you look at Man City at the weekend, Villa never gave them a yard of space. The, every time they picked up the ball, they were on them. And we just didn't do that. And like I said, we probably played into their hands a bit. And that's why the scoreline 
six nil, and that's what it was at the end of the day. So, uh, yes, yeah, massive learning curve, and but it's even though I thought we could have played a bit better, looking at I thought we gave them a few easy goals. Um, they're not the games what we should be looking to get points. It's the teams around us what we need to be looking like. I know the Bournemouth game's gone, but the likes of like Leeds, Fulham, and Leicester, which are coming up, they're the games what you've got to get put your maximum in and get your maximum out of. You mentioned those teams around us, Tom, and those games. And a few days after Man City was Bournemouth at home, and I think the general consensus among Forest fans was that. This was an opportunity to pick up points against a team who will probably be down the bottom with us this season. They'd also just got tanked a few days before 9-0 at Liverpool. Change manager, Scott Parker's left and it's Gary O'Neill in interim charge. And it was all set up for Forrest to get the win, three points on the board and and inflict a bit of damage on a side who could well be around those uh, same spots as Forest come the end of the season. But it didn't quite go to plan, did it? Baz, you did the match report for this one, but I don't know. Looking back on the day, it did feel like something was off, even from before the game. The, the fans were not quite as up for it. The atmosphere wasn't as raucous as it had been at the city ground for West Ham, for Spurs. And... It just there was something just not quite right, was there? Well, I mean, it was my first game, so I can't compare the atmosphere to the other ones. But um, it, from from the watching the team, we certainly seemed disconnected. Um, it's like against Spurs and against West Ham, I thought we played like Cooper's Forest side played last season. We 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 were on it. We were closing down fast. We were pressing high up the pitch, but we were also well connected. We knew when when the wing backs were pushing forward, so we could make the make an attack out of each each thing. Whereas against Bournemouth and against Man City, we didn't play that way. Um, and against Newcastle, Newcastle was kind of understandable because it's a brand new start of the season, brand new team, and everything. But Having seen us against West Ham, having seen us against Spurs, that was why it was so disappointing against Bournemouth to see us that disconnected. Um, I, I made a point in the match report of saying, um, like, uh, Ren and Lottie, who I really, really was impressed with, he kept on bombing forward up the left wing, but no one would pick him out with passes. You could imagine last season when one of the wing backs made for, goes forward, they knew that that was happening, so we could pick him out, and that's where our attacks were, were coming from. Whereas we just felt disjointed and disconnected and like that the players didn't know weren't weren't on the same wavelength. And that's kind of the, the thing that was disappointing for me. Um, the fact that everyone turned, the, the, the fans turned on the, the team in the way that they did, that's also disappointing. But I think that's, I think that the, the place for us to, to uh, the hope for us is that we come back. Um, what we, what it used to be, was uh, what Steve Cooper used to talk about was the belief that the side had. And that seemed to be what he instilled in us. And after the Spurs game, we still had that belief. But after the Bournemouth game, you could sort of kind of feel it seeping away from us. In, in the second half, I knew we were going to lose. And without that belief, that's what we need to to get us back on track. Yeah. Adam, you wanted to come in? Yeah, I think just touching on what uh, Baz said there, the atmosphere was beyond disappointing for me. 
Uh, I think the Tottenham game, the West Ham game, it, it was rocking. It was brilliant. We were the 12th man. We cheered the players on. You could actually, you could see it in a lot of the players that when they're on the ball, when they go into a tackle and there's a big cheer and stuff. It really gets them, it gets behind them. It gives them the extra boost, it gives them that extra yard. But the atmosphere against Bournemouth was dead. It, it, it was. It was. It, it was like we were mid-season in the championship again. It was you could hear a pin drop in the ground. It was so frustrating, and it's like it almost. A lot of people talking before the game. There was almost an arrogance that we'd roll Bournemouth over. You know, like we, we, we're, we're so much better than Bournemouth. You know, Bournemouth were a little bit beneath us, and the attitude, even when we scored the goals, the celebrations, they were very complacent. I, I kind of feel like we need to, we need to get behind the lads every game. The home games are vital. The teams that stay in this division have good home records, get a lot of points at home. Right, we need to make sure that when you're in the ground, you create an atmosphere that's intimidating for the away team. You create an atmosphere like the West Ham game, like the Tottenham game. We can do it. We have done it. We don't want to just come into the league, first few games it's rocking, and then after that it goes downhill because a negative attitude around the club goes right directly to the players. We, we need to stay behind the team. And I think that that was, even with the result, that was one of the most disappointing things to come out of that game. But. I think looking back on that game, I think without knowing, I'm pretty much sure that 99.9% sure we was going to just, with the week they've had, lost 9 0, lost the manager. It was just a matter of like, right, Forrest are just going to turn up, win 2 0. Even at half time, everybody was thinking about 4 or 5. And I think we was probably deep down, we were all guilty of this, we're going to win this game. But if you look back at the game, they, we've had three shots on target all game. One was the header from Chiarte, one was the penalty, and one was a team effort in the second half by Lingard. We've not peppered a team who's let nine in the previous week, and I think that's disappointing. But having said that, we've had, we've had a tough week without making excuses, but I think majority of that crowd um, thought we were just going to turn up, roll um, Bournemouth over. And when it wasn't going according to plan... We was arguing probably between ourselves with the team because evidently you knew it wasn't going to accord plan. Whatever we did that day, from a player's perspective, we was always going to lose that game because of how the game was going. And I think uh, the negativity got onto the pitch. And to be honest, uh, we didn't have an answer to their um, second half display. And having said that, they weren't bad in the first half, really. They had a lot of the ball and I thought they played better than us and we were probably fortunate to come in at half-time, turn up. It was a strange game in that Forrest, yeah, probably didn't need to do a great deal in that first half to be 2-0 up. And going in at half-time, our fans around me were saying, we could probably, if we get the next one, we could get four, five maybe, and, and really do something. And I think credit to Bournemouth, they did come out more in the second half. They improved their performance and... The Philip Billings goal is just world class. You, no keeper is stopping that. And that gave them that bit of hope back that they could get something from the game, which they ultimately capitalised on. They changed um, it half time, didn't they? They, um, they did. Off, um, Adam, who, do you know who the left back was? Uh, Zamora, isn't it? Yeah, he come off and I thought he was their best player in the first half. And I can't remember if they went with three at the back. With two wing backs, I can't, or did they go to a four-four-two? I can't remember. But tactically, we didn't seem to do anything. And when we did change it, the game was gone in my eyes, and I didn't get the uh, 
change where he had Freuler on the bench, O'Brien on the bench, and he brought on, on Colback, which, I mean, Colback's been a good servant, but I don't get why he brought him on, whether he's like trying to serve it 2-0, 2-2 uh, and get a draw out of it, but it didn't really work in my eyes. Baz? Yeah, well, I was just about to talk a bit of the tactics then. So I, I can understand why I put Cole back on. So I thought our, our problem was that um, that when they changed, they did change to a, a three and they sort of matched us up. But that meant that when we, when our two central midfielders, they were both mobile at the same time when we didn't have, ever have anyone sitting. So Cole back obviously would sit. But we were chasing the game. We, we, we were under the cosh. We needed to, to take control of it. And Colback's not going to do that. So I can understand why he did it, but I don't understand at the same time for the same reasons. And and this again, this is probably something we can touch on is, yeah, what, why is he making the decisions that he's making? Is it's the, it's the manager choosing those substitutions? Why is he choosing those starting 11s? is quite is something to think about. And that has partly fueled the reaction to the game for the last couple of days on social media, on forums and other podcasts as well. This questioning of Cooper's methods, what he's what's going through his mind, the decisions he made during that game on Saturday, even the decisions before it with the team selection. We'll come on to the lineups because Against Man City, Forrest persevered with the three at the back formation and, the, and kept that the same, but started with a front three of Jesse Lingard, Morgan Gibbs-White and Brennan Johnson and all good players in their own right, but none of them are a physical presence. None of them are the kind of players who will hold the ball up, try and fend off defenders and try and give you more of a, a foothold in the game when you're under the cosh. And that same front three played against Bournemouth were actually quite lively. I mean, some of the link-up play, I think, between the three is actually very good, particularly Lingard and Gibbs-White. I think there's a good relationship developing there. But when the game was turning, Forrest didn't have that presence up front again to hold onto the ball and try and stem a bit of the flow that, that Bournemouth were building up. and it took a while for Steve Cooper to really do anything about that. And and I was expecting a bit more to be done in terms of reacting to what was going on on the pitch. Tom, would you say that Cooper's got it wrong in the last two games? Um, I'd say, yeah. Uh, yeah, I would. Um, going back to the West Ham game, Awani really gave Kurt Zuma the runaround and we haven't seen him since. And I'm not... I haven't got any um, evidence or anything like that, but is Awani a Steve Cooper signing or the Ruckus signing? Because obviously he's from the Bundesliga and everything um, at Stuttgart. Was he? Because I mean, he had a really good uh, season for Union Berlin, um, but he had another um, partner with him. I don't know, I can't remember, it was Kostic or someone like that. And he, he left. And That's cool. Say again. I think it's Cruiser. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Max Cruiser. Yeah. And yeah, I just think, yeah, when he really played well, then he's playing like, then he's changed it and put Lingard in, Gibbs White and Johnson. And like I said, they haven't got behind the um, any defence once um, yet. And then when you look at the team before the game on Saturday against Bournemouth, he played Yates and Kiarty in there. 
And O'Brien's been our best player in midfield. He really makes our midfield tick. And I know it was a massive blow for um, to lose Mangala. But on the bench, he's like, you've got O'Brien on there, he's got Froiler on there. And they didn't come on and were persevering because Chiarty looked like he was going to come off with an injury. And he's played the, uh, the whole game. I mean, OK, he scored and everything. But, yeah, I was just a bit... I'm just a bit miffed at the moment. I'm not, I don't want to work, use the word arrogance, but why aren't we playing a striker? We're not like Barcelona under Pep, are we, where he didn't play a striker. It's just when we have played a striker, we've looked really well, we played really well this year. But in the last couple of games, when he hasn't played a striker, he has, we haven't looked great. And then when he has actually come on, I mean, he... I don't know, it was probably like 5-0 or 6-0 down against City, but when he come on and glanced that header wide, he did give us something up there, but like I said, he hasn't hardly been seen since uh, the West Ham uh, win a few weeks ago. Baz? Um, as I'm the oldest person here, I'm going to go back in time a little bit. So I, I was taught um, a bit of tactical stuff by Billy Davis in the olden days. Um, not only would he stick um, Deli Adebola on, who was a big lad up front who could barge his way through anything and hold the ball up, but one of the best things he used to do was when we were under the cosh or we needed to hold on for the last 10 minutes or whatever, he'd put Gareth McCleary on. If you remember Gareth McCleary, he was a, a winger who wasn't really very, very good. But what he would do was the ball would stick to his feet and then he would keep the ball in the opposition half. And if we play that front three, if Gibbs, White, Lingard and Johnson, as soon as they lose possession, the ball's coming straight back into our half. We're not getting any chance to hold it up there and give ourselves a bit of respite. And Awanyi or Dennis, and I don't know Dennis as well, but those two players, because they're that little bit more physical, there's that chance that we'll at least give ourselves a bit of breathing space so we can regroup and make another make another attack out of it. And at the moment, it's just coming straight back at us and we're under the cosh again. And on top of that, with them going deeper and deeper, there's huge gaps between the defence, the midfield and everything. And they're just, there's waves of attack. And like I said, if them three lose the year ball, that's three players out of the game. Um, but there's another, um, another thing what's really annoying me at the moment in terms of, I know it's the step up and I get that, but there's a great deal of hesitancy by a few of our players where, they're like, shall I go for the ball, shall I not? And when in that split second of them not doing anything throughout the game, there was an occasion on, I don't want to have a go at you, it's because last season especially he was brewing for us, but there was one way he hesitated to get the ball. Billings got the ball, he's away. Yates is out of the game. Um, Wolf against Everton, when Anthony Gordon was running at him, he did the same thing, he's out of the game. And then I think it was Steve Cook or um, whoever um, come across. Um, do The quicker we get near Carty back in that defence with a bit of pace in there and someone who can bring the ball out and then somebody up top actually keeping on hold of the ball, it will close those lines and we probably won't get picked off as easily. So well, that's what I've noticed since Mangala's not been playing. I mean, one, he's been dropped to the bench and near Carty's been out injured. So if we get them three back... I think it will make a huge difference to us. You're listening to 1865, the Nottingham Forest Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And on the subject of Ryan Yates, he was a player who, from certain sections of the fan base, got got a bit of a hammering after the, the game on Saturday. And it does seem that there are fans who are turning against the likes of Yates and Worrell. And even after the mistake on Saturday, McKenna, these players who've got Forrest in this position in the first place and without whom Forrest wouldn't be a Premier League club. Adam, do you think that people have simply overreacted in the wake of that Bournemouth defeat and have probably crossed the line with with criticism and and their views on on what happened? Oh, absolutely. There's no there's no doubt in my mind that people have overreacted. Um, you know what's funny to me is that people let their own perception of the team, they let their own opinion of who they think should be playing cloud their judgment on actually what's just happened in front of you. Ryan Yates did not play that bad against Bournemouth. He he did the job that I feel he was there to do. I'd more probably question the fact that you're playing Rate uh, Yates and Kiarte. They're very obviously they're, they're not similar in the sense that the that one of them's obviously they can't Kiarte has a big physical presence in midfield. Yates is not really that. But they are both defensive midfielders. They are both defensive minded. Yates can drift forward a little bit more. He scored a lot of goals last season from doing that. But if you look at what Yates is good at, Yates is good at being a bit of a terrier, going around there, getting the ball, harrying players, rushing players, and that sort of thing. And Chiarte is really good at breaking up the play. The argument isn't really, is Yates good enough or anything like that? It's probably more, does Yates need to play with a Freuler, who is a bit more of a player that will advance the ball going forward? They complement each other quite well in that scenario then. For me, with, with that situation, Froelen must either not be match fit or must not be completely at it yet in training because Froelen ability-wise is one of the best footballers in our squad. If you've watched Atalanta in the Champions League, you know how good Remo Froelen is. I, I'm still shocked at this point that he plays for Forest. It's baffling to me, you know, and it was such a big signing. So I think that that's slightly harsh. And obviously, coming on to Worrell, I, as you guys know in the group chat after, I was very critical of Worrell, um, maybe unfairly so. I think that the problem is with Worrell at the moment and the problem is with Cook at the moment as well, and maybe even McKenna creeping into this, is that none of that back three are very quick. They're not what you'd call naturally athletically gifted centre-backs like Nia Garte, who is fast, he gets along the, um, the field really quickly. Um, he get he snaps into a challenge quite quickly. You know, he's just a bit zippier, if you like. Without him, we really struggle. And I would honestly question why we we can't play a back three of Warrell, Cook, and McKenna. I just don't think we can. It's not got enough pace in that back three. We're going to get ripped to shreds playing it. I think we can play the back three. I don't think we have to throw that out the window completely. But I don't think you can play it with those that three as a personnel. I think with Nia Carter comes back, if Loic Bardet is, um, I've seen bits of him, I can't say that I'm a massive league owner fan, but if he's, he, he's described as a quick athletic centre-back, 
if he can integrate into the squad and if he can come into the team and, you know, we don't want to put too much pressure on a 22-year-old coming into the Premier League, but if he can come in and be that quick athletic centre-back with Nia Carte, I think you can definitely look at playing them either side and putting Worrell in the middle. You've then got a little bit of pace and you've got Worrell that can be in there. So there is a use for Worrell and there is a use for Cook. It's just not in a back three. Uh, uh, them, them, them two and obviously McKenna. Against Leeds, if Nia Carte isn't fit, and if Loic Bardet isn't deemed ready, then I would argue that you've got to look at a back four. You, you've got to protect yourself and look at a back four. If you want to go McKenna and Warren in a back four with two holding midfielders, and then you go, well, what I would go is Johnson on the right, Dennis on the left, Gibbs White in the hole, and then Alwini up front. If you go like that, I think that you stop a lot of what Bournemouth did against us. The third goal, especially. Um, the first goal, obviously, we're unlucky. And the second goal, again, there's not a lot you can do about it. But to sort of tie this very long point in, if you're going to play a back three, it's not them three. And if you're not, if you've not got near cards, how you play a back four, it's as simple as that for me, really. Tom? Yeah, but I agree with what you're saying with that the lack of pace has been worrying at times. But sometimes I think it's, also, speed of thought, actually reading the game. Um, if you look at like other Premier League teams, they might not have the fastest centre horse in there. I.e., if you look at Everton, you look at Conor Cody and James Tarkovsky, they're not the quickest in terms of raw pace, but it's speed of thought. And I think we know them Cook, McKenna, and Wall aren't the quickest, but sometimes it's the hesitancy as well, and sometimes. Like Wall a couple of occasions this season. I don't want to just single him out, but he's been go think he can because he's captain, he's got to go through every single ball. And you don't you've got to be a bit cute of what to what balls to attack. And I mean the one for um, Ben Rama, I think it was when the penalty decision was ordered, it comes flying at him, completely misses him, and Wall's out of the game. So I think it's the speed of thought is a and also as big of a factor as the lack of pace from the three of them. And I think we've just got to be a bit cuter with the decisions we're making. Um, but looking back at it, it's that they're playing quite deep because the ball's not being stuck. So mentally, they're being drained as well. So they've got to close those lines and be a bit quicker um, and not being too hesitant when the ball's coming in towards them. A lot of our team are new to Premier League football. The manager is new to Premier League football. The club is new to Premier League football, really, having not been there for 23 years. And Baz, I want to throw this to you. Are we just learning on the job because we've got no choice? A manager who hasn't managed in the Premier League before, as talented as he is and you know as good as he's done in his career so far. So there would be a bit of grace there, you would think. Same with the players. A lot of these players getting up to the speed of a brand new league and it's one thing playing FA Cup games when you're in the middle of a good run in the championship, but actually stepping up and playing Premier League football week in, week out, it's a different animal, isn't it? Yeah, I think what's what's coming across here is, uh, so like for the for the West Ham game, when we had Nierkarte, we had Mangala and we had Awani on the, on the pitch. That's like a, a different spine to, to the team, completely different. And Nierkarte had that, that, that pace and that athleticism. Mangala had the same, Awani had the same. 
I don't know if Bardet has. I've not seen him play. I'm just looking actually. I'm just looking at the photo of him on the um, on the club site, and you've never seen someone look quite as French as him. It's quite amazing. <laughs> quite amazing. <laughs> but um, I, I disagree with you, Adam, on saying we couldn't stop the second goal. Part of the reason for the second goal was Billing was in acres of space, so he could make that shot. But he was in acres of space because our back three was slow to react because our midfield was slow to react. And it all seems to be that, yeah, it's exactly that. We're learning. Steve Cooper's learning. We're trying to find the right blend of players. And we seem to hit on the right blend against West Ham. But then two of those are injured and we don't know what's happened to the third. And it's finding the players to to drop in and and replace them and, and get them to do the right things at the right time. Adam, did you want to come in? Yeah, I mean, I don't know we both saying anything wrong. Like, uh, I think Tom's example of Cody and, um, yeah, the Everton defence, anyway, um, you've got, you've got Tarkovsky, yeah. Um, and then obviously you've got Ben Godfrey that plays in there as, as well. Um, I, I think that you, you're talking a lot of Premier League minutes and, you know, they can compensate for their weaker parts differently. Um, now, as regards to the billing goal, I've seen a lot of people say, like he's not closed down enough and that sort of thing. And I, I do get that perspective. I do get that thought process. But if you watch the goal again, actually Lingard's lost the ball fairly cheaply. And obviously, I'm not going to dig Lingard out. I really like him. Um, but he loses the ball. And after he loses the ball, he doesn't doesn't react. He doesn't go back at Billing and stop the shot. If Joe Roll, if, if one of those centre-halves, and I, I'm afraid that was advocate on their side, really, is that if they come out, do a lot of people say, oh, they need to come out, they need to close down the shot. He's 25, 30 yards out. Like, you don't expect that you're going to score from there. And you can have that shot a hundred times and score one of them. And a lot of the Bournemouth fans said that to me when I was coming back from the game as well, that he is that sort of player, right? If Warren steps out of the line or Cook steps out of the line, there's a gap in behind that he's going to play the ball into. It's not just a case of rushing out to stop a shot from 30 yards out. That's where your midfield have got to come into it as well. Because if you're a centre-half and you rush out to a player that's 30 yards from goal, right? Although he can ping one in the top corner, you have to look statistically, that's not the likeliest thing to happen. The likeliest thing to happen is he won't score, right? So your midfielders, Yates, Kiarte, but in this instance, it's actually more Lingard, they need to be going to him and closing the shot down. You can't have your back line just running out and being reactive. I don't think that's going to be any better for you. Tom? You know, he says that he's probably unlikely to score. I've seen the same Philip Billing play for Huddersfield have a shot from exactly the same area of the pitch and he's put it in top corner. So it's very much a deja vu moment because I've actually seen him uh, do it. In, and when he got the ball, I thought, he's going to have a pop here. And he had a pop. It's gone into top corner and they've, um, he's given Bournemouth a foothold in the game. So, uh, yeah, I see. I can see where you're coming from. But I've Bill in 25 yards out. He has got a bit of a hammer for it, hasn't he? And, and ultimately uh, went to the top corner and it put them on the uh, road to getting three points on Saturday. And it was the goal from Dominic Solanke that made it 2-2, which was a, an overhead kick, which did look like it took a slight nick off Scott McKenna and, and looped over Henderson. That came from a set piece, ball nodded back across and Solanke with the acrobatics. The winning goal, Forrest, I think, had been on the attack and lost the ball quite high up the pitch. Bournemouth turned it over. The ball was played down the right channel towards Solanke. It was McKenna who, nine times out of ten, hoofs that into Rose Ed, and we don't have a problem. 
but he decides to turn, play the ball back towards the goalkeeper. It's not strong enough. Solanke runs onto it, squares it for Jaden Anthony, and and he puts it away, and, and Bournemouth take all three points. It did feel a little bit like same old Forest it, at that point. Baz, did we just bring that on ourselves through the way that we lost control of the game? And you hinted that it was inevitable in that second half that we'd lose. So did we just shoot ourselves in the foot there and almost deserve it as a result? It's Again, I think it comes down to, to this idea of not knowing what our best team is and not knowing how we want to play or or not know, not necessarily not knowing how we want to play, but not being all on the same wavelength when playing that way, because because it did feel like they they were coming into the game because of the gaps we were leaving and and the the, the mistakes we were making as much as anything else. So um, if we get all that stuff right, um, if we get the right players in the right positions, if we get them working on and playing on the same wavelength. I can see us causing a problem for a lot of teams. I, I can remember thinking after the Spurs game, the way we played there, if you're not going to be in the top six, then you should you should be scared of us. But then the way we played against Bournemouth, it didn't look anything like that. And and that's kind of the thing that, that we need to get back to is if we can get that that identity and that way of playing with the with the the team, then then we'll be all right. But we're obviously a long way short of that at the moment. Goes back to this week, though, doesn't it? That this eight days between games is absolutely massive for um, Steve Cooper, and um, and another <laughs> signing twenty two's just been uh, now and subject to a, um, a work permit or visa approval. Sergio Aurier's sign, which has probably been pretty much expected for the last couple of weeks. So that's another uh, player headache for Steve Cooper too. But it's a bit of competition for uh, Nico Williams, isn't it? We can now field two 11s. That's 22 signings. Yeah, you can count summer. 22 at the same time. <laughs> sure, it's up a bit. But just going back to, to Bournemouth quickly and the reaction to the game, I think I think a lot of Forest fans were devastated after the final whistle and, and the manner of the defeat and how disappointing it was. But certainly on social media and in certain sections, I think this this has spilled over and people have gone a bit too far with their criticism of the team, of the performance and of the game as a whole because it's one game. It's one game out of 38. And I think we were guilty of building this game up as a win for Forrest and an opportunity for Forrest. And then when we didn't get the result that we wanted, it's like it's the end of the world. And there's been fans coming out, being verbally abusing players on social media. Granted, probably a small minority of the fan base. In fact, it is a small minority of the fan base. So you don't want to give too much credit to, to these words that are being spoken. But it just, to me, seems completely counterproductive to what we're trying to do and what we've been building over the last 12 months. That is probably the worst 45 minutes of football under Steve Cooper that we've had in that second half against Bournemouth. But over the course of a year, he's done an incredible job and it's it's like everyone's piling in on him 
because of a bad 45 minutes. And to me, it just comes across incredibly ungrateful and incredibly short-minded. What what do you think on that, Adam? Have people just gone over the top? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, and I, I put a tweet up the other day, uh, which was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I did also kind of mean it. If you put Steve Cooper out, or you say anything about Steve Cooper should leave the club, I'm going to block you on Twitter. And I did. I blocked three or four people. If you genuinely, hand on heart, believe that Steve Cooper shouldn't be Forest manager, I cannot entertain that opinion. It's absolute lunacy. Steve Cooper should be Forest manager until Steve Cooper does. I, I would even argue, I said this before the season, if we go down, Steve Cooper shouldn't get sacked. We should, he should still be the manager. You can't just say, oh, we spent loads of money, so that, that guarantees that we're going to stay up. It doesn't guarantee anything. We had to do that. We had to bring in so many players. We are the we are you know talk sport lovers, don't we, at the moment? But we did have to bring in a lot of players. We had to do it, right? We we had such a thin squad as it was. The lone players have left. The, the signings were very necessary. But I think what frustrates me is people seem to forget that when you bring so many players in, Steve Cooper's got such a dilemma as he's got to balance being loyal to the players that got us up and. He needs to work on that as a skill. He does need to understand that the players that we brought in, ability-wise, might be better than the players that brought us up. But at the same time, do you not have a... If you were going in something, would you not have maybe kind of like a... Well, I know how. I know what this player is going to offer me. I know what Ryan Yates will offer me. I know what Joe Warrell will offer me. I know what Brennan Johnson offers me. I know them better as players. I haven't got to know the new lads yet. So chucking them in tactically is difficult because I don't know I don't know how to get the best out of them yet. The players will be brought in slowly, the new signings will be brought in gradually. He will understand in a couple of months but it will take a bit of time bringing so many players. He'll understand in a month's time, two months time potentially just before we're going into the World Cup. And people say, Oh it's too late. We're gonna pick up points on that way. But he'll kind of get more of an understanding for what's his best system in the Premier League. He'll change the system depending on who you're playing. But also your best eleven. I, I think that we don't know our best eleven. If you if you go on Twitter now and you ask a hundred Forest fans what's your best Forest eleven, I think you'd struggle to get many of them exactly the same in the same formation and same personnel. Nobody knows what our best eleven is yet. I, I tell I can assure you that Remo Freud is going to come in and be good. I can tell you that Emmanuel Dennis will come in and be brilliant, right? But other than Ren and Lodi, who was kind of just basically just chucked in straight away, you, you, these players are going to take time to be integrated into the team. But you need to have that patience. You need to trust the man that not not only got us promoted, by the way, took us from the bottom of the championship and got us promoted, but a man that will get us results in this league. So any talk of Steve Cooper leaving Forest, any talk of Forest fans wanting him to go, is baffling. Utterly baffling, and I can't describe it any other way. I can understand fans questioning the manager's decisions to a point, whether that's team selection, formations, substitutions, because we all do it. We all wonder, why has he done that? Or That's a brilliant tactical move, a brilliant sub, the right player at the right time. I think that's perfectly valid, but I've seen this on social media this week. People making baseless and fictitious conspiracy theories about Steve Cooper's future and what Evangelos Maranakis might do based on his previous record at Olympiacos or what people seem to think he might be doing because 
150 million pounds has been spent i think that's potentially damaging and actually a bit contemptible to be honest because that doesn't help anybody connected to forest does it tom do you agree no i agree and another thing is that we only see these players for 45 minutes 60 minutes 90 minutes or whatever 20 minutes like the last stages of the game steve cooper sees these players six to seven times a week um over the over the week in training he has more interaction with them as we will ever do and at the end of the day is that he's got more qualifications than we would ever dream in getting we're just every fan does it every fan obviously we're all having these discussions because ultimately we care about the football club but steve cooper with his credentials what he's done so far in his career has got more justification of what he does with these players and any of those, even though we put our money in year in, year out, but at the end of the day, we're just like Joe Bloggs in the street. And he has, he sees these players every single um, day of the week. So, okay, he might have some questionable team selections, but at the end of the day, he'd be able to justify it. He will probably give them why he's played that player. They've all got these uh, GPSs on. He knows how sharp they are, how many miles uh, miles they've run, this, that and the other. So, I mean, like I said, we all care, but at the end of the day, he's the one picking the side and he's the one who's got credentials of why he's picking these players. And at the end of the day, he's the first manager in 23 years out of all the managers we've had, he's got us into the Premier League. And everybody who's from a first persuasion will be internally grateful for that. And I think, like we've mentioned on this, I mean, it is ultimately frustrating that we've had the week what we've had, but he's still knitting this team together. And like I said earlier in the pod, if there's no improvement in six to eight weeks, then we've got probably a bit more justification of questioning these. But at the moment, he's still trying to find out his best 11, his best formula, his best tactics to get the best out of these players. And all right, we've spent 150 million, but it's not like a matter of like, it's going to come together over overnight kind of thing. And then like I said to you, I said it a couple of times already, this eight days between games is going to be absolutely beneficial and crucial for us in the next series of games um, for obviously getting points on the table or points on the board, I should say. Baz, I read a stat this week that says that Forest have the 19th most expensive squad in the Premier League. So based on that, aren't we just performing as we should be? Have we got anything to worry about as a fan base? Because we're 19th in the table as it stands with the 19th most expensive squad in the league, regardless of how much we've spent and how many players have come in. Well, I mean, yeah, I would say part of it is, yeah, all the, uh, I'm, I'm sick of the, is 21 players, 22 now players, too many, and and Forrest has spent this much money and, and all that sort of stuff. I'm sick of all those articles and all that discussion because we, the place we started from was so far behind everyone else. We were so far, I think I read that Fulham, um, no, Bournemouth had spent over the course of like the last four years has spent a hundred million. So we're just catching up to them to get, we're just doing it in one summer, but rather than over however many years. So on that side of things, it's, um, 
yeah, we are where we are, and that's it's kind of to be expected. Is that um, transfer fees or wages, by the way? That's transfer fees. Because apparently the, the biggest predictor is wages of where you're going to end up, um, is what I read. But that, that'd be, that, so that would be well, an interesting one to look well, at. Man, man, you have chucked a load of money at wages over the uh, yeah. past few years <laughs> and got basically next to nothing out yeah. of players like Pogba, Sanchez, yeah. um, etc. So, uh, yeah, wages... <laughs> it's one of them, isn't it? But Chris Sutton said it. It was a couple of years ago, you know, when West Ham was chucking a load of money at it. I think it was under um, Pellegrini. And he said, oh, because West Ham has spent the same as Liverpool, then they should be winning the title. No, it doesn't work like that. You mm-hmm. need so many windows to build to where you want to be. And like you said, we're playing catch-up. I mean, Fulham and Bournemouth have had the luxury of having those like parachute payments coming down into the Championship and the managed to keep the same players over a certain amount of time. We've basically had to get the 21, 22 players in and then um, try and be competitive in the league. And other teams have had like the luxury of obviously piecing. They might lose players, but they've still got that parachute payment to add to it. We've not had that. We've got We've got promoted with no parachute payments, no silver spoon from anything else. The thing what's kept us going is the magnificent work what Gary Brazil's done with obviously nurturing these players, selling them to keep us going. And we've had to like sell some really, really good players over that time and still stay competitive in the league. And thankfully last season, everything knitted together and we got promoted. But other teams have had the luxury of like lots of windows where we haven't had that luxury. I was just trying to think back. Last season when Steve Cooper took over, so it was seven games in when Chris Hewton got sacked. Steve Cooper took over a game after. And then did he have like an international break shortly after his first like couple of games? Was that, was that am I remembering that right? Um, I can have a look for you. I think, you know, I think there was an international break in October, wasn't there? And he took over sort of middle of September. Yeah. So, he, the... so we played um, so on, the, on the 18th, um, we played Huddersfield, Stephen Reid took yeah, over yeah. that game. Um, and the following week, we got a 1-1 um, against Millwall at home. That was his first home game. Um, then we played Birmingham away in 1-3-0 on the 2nd of October. Then we had the international uh, mm-hmm. break. Then City away. The, um, well, we played Blackpool at home. Um, that was the first game back after the international mm-hmm. um, period. Um, then we played... Bristol in the week after the Blackpool game where we won 2-1. Then I think the following, yeah, the Sunday the 24th, we played four and last Because that, that's, so if you think about it, in many ways, we're, it's a repeat of last season. So we're, we're struggling for points at the minute. We've, we've had a little bad run of results, which has got people very, very unhappy with the team. But as of what? 20 minutes ago, it's only now that our squad has been completed. So Steve Cooper's coming in with a fresh group of players. He's about to have a week and a bit with that fresh group of players. And it took him two weeks after that to be what I thought was the turning point of last season, which was that Bristol City away game. So if he can do the same in these next eight days, then, then yeah, we could have a repeat of last season in that way. Because he's it not, is about getting those players to gel and getting them to think that the way he wants them to think. He's a, as what's gone before is that 
He's a brilliant coach. He's already proved that. So with his staff, he's not stupid. He will know what we're good at, what we're not so good at. So like I said, it all comes back to this um, eight days where he's he's probably, he's never had it. If you look at how the um, summer went, it was like we had so many players and it's a trickle of some more coming in, then some more, some more. This is the first time he's got the, what, 25, 26 players or whatever the squad is now together because you might be able to work on something then another two come through the door and it's like you've got to like integrate them into the side of how they play. But now he's got everybody on that training um, pitch down at Nightfield Doubted Academy and we can really start to put things in motion of how he wants these players to play. And, uh, and he's never had that, has he? So um, proof being the, uh, the pudding when um, we play Leeds and then follow it and, and then uh, following the following Friday. So uh, hopefully uh, this eight weeks will, uh, sorry, eight days will be really beneficial to him. You could even say that the season starts here. We'll take a break. At this point in part two, we'll have a little more in-depth look at the transfers that Forrest have made over the summer and even during the course of this podcast. But for now, it's over to Jeremy Davis. You're listening to 1865, the Nottingham Forest podcast. The 1865 sketch by Jeremy Davis. The collective outpouring of joy from the media with the exception of Jonathan Wilson, at Forrest's return to the Premier League, was getting a little wearing. So it was something of a relief to bump into a Sheffield United fan on holiday last month, who absolutely despised the club. And this was before we signed Morgan Gibbs-White. Whilst I was away, Forrest beat West Ham, in a clash described by the Maradona of the Midlands as having more drama than an episode of EastEnders, a gag which works on a number of levels, since, of course, West Ham do come from the East End, and drew with Everton. Since I returned, of course, they've lost three on the bounce in the Premier League. Good thing football fans aren't a superstitious lot, or you might conclude that I'm a bad omen. On the whole, though, I realised that for many football fans of a certain age and older, Forrest's return harks back to more innocent, simpler times, and seeing Premier League football back at the city ground has more nostalgia than the final episode of Neighbours. Speaking of nostalgia, now that Boris Johnson is no longer the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, it is fair to say that the significance of Latin to life in the UK is ancient history. Indeed, possibly the only place you're likely to come across it outside of the law courts is football clubs, many of whom still use Latin mottos on their badges. The club motto is a curious thing. The Cambridge Dictionary definition of the word motto is a word, phrase or sentence that expresses the principles or belief of a person, group, country or organisation. Aside from sport, the only organisations I can call to mind that use mottos prominently are private schools and transformers. Despite following the club for more than 30 years, I realised recently that I didn't actually know Forrest's motto. Investigation swiftly revealed it to be vivit post funera virtus, which translates as virtue outlives death. It's shared with the city of Nottingham, but seems oddly fitting for a club which owes its colours to a freedom fighter, the famous Garibaldi Red, taken from the tunics worn by Italian freedom fighter Giuseppe Garibaldi and his band of merry men. Karl Marx described Garibaldi as a pitiful donkey, so he might have been in with a shout of holding down a place in the forest midfield in recent games. 
With its martial origins, the motto is slightly more dramatic than those of the other clubs we faced in August since our return to the Premier League. Our opening opponents, Newcastle, revel in the motto built on a stubborn defence, which seems a tad ironic for the club of Darren Peacock, Titus Bramble and Fabio Colaccini. But like Forrest's own motto, it is apparently shared with the city itself, fittingly for a one-club town, and can be traced back to the resolute defence of the city against Scots attackers in 1644. These days, of course, the club has set its sights considerably further than Scotland when it comes to international relations. The motto could be taken to describe the manager's stubborn defensiveness whenever anyone asks him about the club's ownership and anything to do with human rights. Our only league win of the month, of course, was at home to West Ham, a club that seems not to have a motto, which could be one reason why they haven't got off to a great start this season, given how important we all know that corporate purpose is these days. The motto of our next opponent's Everton is perhaps the most complex grammatically. Nil satis nisi optimum. Roughly translates as nothing but the best will do. Befitting the lofty intellectual standards of the school of science. Even if it seems until the 82nd minute of the match at Goodison that the Everton players have decided to shorten it to nil satis. Which brings me to Tottenham. Now of all Spurs' missteps in the past few years, playing Champions League matches at Wembley, trying to furlough their staff, playing Tangi and Dombele in big games, that own goal by Sergio Reguilón, none has been as serious, in my view, as casting aside the solemn and almost poetic Latin motto Audere est vacere for the pedestrian-sounding translation to dare is to do. Not only is it a sentence with two infinitives, the linguistic equivalent of double denim, but it sounds like they've nicked it from some Jedi training textbook. You're half expecting Yoda to chip in with there is no try. I've always thought it lost something in translation, partly because I was never clear on what exactly they were daring to do. If they wanted to update it, they might at least have changed it to to dare is to do nothing, unless the year ends in one. Oh well, only nine years to wait. You just have to hope that Conte hangs around that long for the sake of fans of a club that's had more false dawns than the set of the Truman Show. And then, of course... A month that began with such promise and optimism ended with Forrest's trip to the Etihad, where Alfie's boy put us to the sword in a performance befitting the motto adorning Man City's badge, Superbia in Prolio, which translates as pride in battle. Virtue may indeed outlast death, but whether it can outlast a 6-0 thrashing remains to be seen, after a match featuring more disappointing performances than an episode of El Dorado. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thanks, Jeremy. So, as we all know, Forest have had a busy summer transfer window with 22 signings arriving at the club. The transfer activity has generated plenty of interest, not just amongst our fan base, but it seems every other fan base in the Premier League and beyond. And every media outlet has had its say. 
early on in these six games, we've seen a mixture of players in and out of the team with the likes of Lewis O'Brien, Harry Toffolo, who both came in from Huddersfield. They've been in the side from the start of the season. Toffolo's only just really been displaced by another summer signing in in Renan Lodi. Tawaranee's come in, had a bit of an impact. He's been out of the team. We've had the record signings of Morgan Gibbs-White. We've had Awani himself was a record signing. So we've broken our transfer record numerous times over the summer alone. So it's been busy. There's been a lot of ins. There's been a lot of outs as well. Just to get us going, Adam, what do you think of Forrest's transfer business? And you could, as Baz argued in, in the first half of this podcast, their transfer dealings are now complete. So how would you say that they've done over the summer, both ins and outs? If I was to give it a grade, I'd probably give it like a C plus as a transfer window. Um, I think we've done really well. Um, it was such a difficult job for us to do. Like you're talking building a whole, you know, majority of a new squad. To be honest, and it was never going to be easy. Um, a few highlights for me so far. Nia Carte is different gravy. He's absolutely brilliant from what we've seen from him so far. Obviously, with Mainz captain, he's never going to come in and be a bad player, but he's been brilliant. Um, our old Mangala looks quality. Like when he's played, he looks absolutely class. Just hoping we can get him back soon. Um, Renan Lodi is a biz- bizarrely brilliant bit of business. Um, he's probably one of the best left backs in La Liga recent in the recent years. And uh, falling down the pecking order at Atletico Madrid confusingly. I watched Atletico not long ago where Saul played left back, and it's it's really weird. <laughs> I don't get it, but. You know, players fall out of favour, systems change, I get that. Um, yeah, and obviously Morgan Gibbs-White's the, the marquee signing. Um, I think he's a brilliant footballer. Uh, he's definitely shown glimpses of his, his brilliance. He's still really young as well. Um, so even though he's got the big prize probably we've got to remember he's young. He's still going to develop. He's going to be a much better footballer as he goes on, especially under a manager he knows really well. Um, but I think it's really important that we've added some players with some Premier League experience as well. I think people really, you know, sort of, I don't know, underplay it a bit. Like players like, you know, like Chiato, um, now Sergio Aurier as well. It's good to get these players in that have got good Premier League experience. I pay absolutely no notice to people saying that Sergio Aurier has got a bad attitude. If you listen to all of the things that came out about him, his attitude, about his conduct, they were all blown massively out of proportion. A lot of his, a lot of Spurs fans will completely agree with that point that he had a lot of family problems, a lot of family issues, that kind of thing. You know, I, I genuinely am happy about the signing. I think he offers good experience. So yeah, in general, I think the signings have been good. There's a few signings that I wasn't too sure about. Like for example, I wasn't too sure about Harry Toffolo. I like him as a footballer, maybe not in the Premier League. Um, and obviously at his age, he's not going to develop too much more. So I was a little bit unsure about that. And, you know, there's, there has been a few signs where I'm like, mm, OK, that's not too bad. Um, but look, for the most part, I think we've done really well. So we've brought in some really, really good players. Um, I was a little bit disappointed that Hussam Alwa didn't get over the line just because I rate him so highly as a footballer. But again, a lot of Lyon fans were saying that the reason still at Lyon is more attitude related rather than ability rated. Maybe that was a bit smoke and mirrors anyway, that, that transfer rumour. It always came across like that. None of the big journalists really picked it up. So 
I, I think maybe that was just more smoke and mirrors. If we don't get Gibbs White, then maybe that's where we go. But but yeah, for the most part, I'm really happy with the transfer window. I can't wait to see some players like Remo Freud or again, Champions League experience midfielder come in and be a regular. Um, but we've got to be patient. We will see these players, Emmanuel Dennis as well, Premier League experience again. We will see these players come come in. We will see them have a big part to play in the seasons to come. Um, when you sign 22 players, I can't remember all of the ones we signed. But, you know, like for the ones I've shouted out anyway, I'm really happy with One of the criticisms of Forrest's summer recruitment from people who don't know the full story, people who simply don't follow Forrest or don't want to dig deeper and understand exactly why Forrest have brought in the amount of players they have. Their criticism is that it's a scattergun approach and Forrest are just chucking money at players. But when you look a bit deeper into the profiles of these players, they do fit that Dane Murphy, Steve Cooper mould that we've been working to with players at a good age, with plenty of years ahead of them to develop resale value should we get relegated or these players perform so well and their their value goes up and other clubs higher up the chain want to take a look at them and want to sign them so I actually think when you've signed 22 players it could go really wrong you could sign players make an absolute mess of the squad bring in a load of mercenaries and just stockpile players but Tom it doesn't feel like that does it there's method behind everything we've done this summer yeah, if you look at the stats, this there's reason behind every single player we've signed. Uh, if you look at it, uh, and you look at all the players what we've signed uh, in the past, the the club have probably been guilty of getting, like getting somebody from Europe who we've never heard of. But if you look at the stats, near I think every single player has done something in their career, and they're at a decent age as well. So if you look at I'll just take a handful of players here. You've got Remo Freuler. He's played in Champions League Atalanta and he's got so many caps for Switzerland. We see Switzerland at every European or World Cup and the no mugs. You've got to be pretty decent to play for Switzerland. So then you've got Oro Mangala. If you, he's got caps for Belgium. You're not going to be rubbish if you get noted and playing. Um, for Belgium with that midfield of obviously uh, Axel Witzel in there and uh, Kevin De Bruyne, etc. And they're completely different players, but you're still in that squad with those players. Um, you look at like Moussa Akate, um he was captain for Mainz last year in the, um, and I think did he finish like in the top five or something in the Bundesliga last year? You've got Renan Lodi who's played for Atletico Madrid and they're probably like the second or third best uh, team in Spain um, from previous years. So every single player we've signed, there's been logic behind it and the stats back that up. And there's, I've not looked and think, who's that? That's an absolute nobody. When you look at the stats and who they've played for and what they've done in their careers, I think every single signing has been uh, pretty exciting. And even uh, with the, like, the lesser extent of Czech Cuarte, who's in the last eight years, he's played for Palace, who have been a pretty steady um, Premier League side and they've kept uh, held their own in the Premier League so I think um, yeah we have signed some really good players and even with the Jesse Lingard thing I thought when that the rumours of that and Forrest got it over the line if you look at Jesse Lingard from the last few years he's been um, capped at 
international level for England. He's gone to World Cups, etc. So he's no slouch as well. And you've got Morgan Gibbs-White, who's probably one of the most exciting players outside the Premier League for the last couple of years, been on loan at Swansea in Sheffield United and playing for Wolves. So we've signed some really good players here. And it's just a matter of what we said in the first half of the part. We've got to just knit it all together now and hopefully um, we'll, uh, our results will improve and we'll start moving a bit up the league. And uh, just a quick one on our latest signing, Serge Aurier, a player with vast Premier League experience, Champions League experience. He had four years at Spurs. Most recently was playing for Villarreal in La Liga. Plenty of experience and he's only 29. Okay, perhaps doesn't fit that money ball approach, if you like, but neither does Willy Bolly. And players like Bolly, like Aurier, I think they're crucial to the squad because they're bringing in an experience that a lot of these players don't have. There's a lot of talent in our squad, but Nico Williams, for example, he's now going to have Serge Aurier behind him. But Nico Williams, so talented, but this is the first time in his career that he's been a first-choice right-back on a permanent basis, if you look outside of loan spells to other clubs. He was never going to get a chance at Liverpool while Trent Alexander-Arnold was there. He's come to Forest with potential, and he's he's already shown glimpses of that in, in his first few games in a Forest shirt. So just coming a bit more on to Aurier, and I'll come to you on this one, Baz. It does seem like a very sensible signing in terms of experience and nous for the level that we're now operating at. Reminds, it reminds me of the um, the Steve Cook signing, basically. It's like, yeah, he doesn't fit the profile, but we need someone like that because you can't just have a team of youngsters. You need you need an older head just there to, to whisper in. And, and even what Graben was supposedly doing last season as well, which was like taking Brennan Johnson aside and saying, well, if I was in that situation, this is what I'd have done. So even if they're not playing, they're there advising the players and, and helping them out um, so, and, and bringing the youngsters through, which is which is absolutely perfect. Yeah, that's exactly what we want. And would you say now that the squad is complete and we've got depth in every position that we need it and we're ready to to really go at this next run of games, certainly up until the World Cup. Tom? Um, yeah. Um, Steve Cooper's wanted um, two players for every position. And I think with Serge Aurier coming in, I think right wing back was the... I know he's got Biancon in there who we haven't really seen much of. I think looking at it, he probably looks more of, like, more of a squad depth more than anything, but uh, and Nico Williams has played, I think, every single Premier League game this year um, so far. So, um, yeah, having Sergio Rio there with, but I'm a, I'm a bit sceptical with when he was at Spurs in terms of Mourinho couldn't trust him, but that could be Mourinho just being Mourinho and just saying it for the sake of it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so, but it's quality in depth in terms of he's played for Ivory Coast international level, he played in Champions League for Spurs, he played for Villarreal, who are no slouches who got quite far in the Champions League last year. So um and it's another string to the bow, isn't it? If Nico Williams is out injured, then you've got decent cover. 
So, um, yeah, like I said, um, Steve Cooper's wanted two positions um, or two players for every position, and he's got that now. So, uh, yeah, we'll uh, see what we can do in the coming months. And another position which has been filled successfully has been the goalkeeping position. I don't think many Forest fans expected Bryce Samba to move on during the summer, having helped us get up and certainly seemed to he certainly seemed to enjoy being a Forest player and he'd built up quite the rapport with the fans, but he moved on. Forrest moved for Dean Henderson, who'd been in reserve at Man United, but he wanted to get back into to England recognition and play regular football again. Adam, he, he just looks like a superb signing already, doesn't he? Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, Dean Henderson's a top goalkeeper, a top top goalkeeper. Like, I, I think to be honest, and you know, I might get a bit of stick for this, but you know, it is what it is. I think he's, I think he's a better goalkeeper than um, David De Gea currently is. The current version of David De Gea, I, I, I probably prefer Henderson. I say that more because, you know, I think Henderson can do a little bit more as a goalkeeper. Um, is who I prefer. I, I find it really strange with Henderson that he hasn't really had a a Premier League club before Forest where he can kind of go and be the number one. Um, already, I'm looking at this transfer going like, if we stay up and we, you know, and he wants to come back, like we've got to sign him. Like he, he's fantastic, and it's not just the penalty saves because the penalty saves are the glory moments, aren't they? They're they're the the big moments where it's like, oh, he's you know he saved the penalty, amazing. It's not just that, it, it's it's everything else, it's the other big saves he makes, it's how I feel like he talks to his defence a lot, you can hear it from where I sit, especially at a lower trend, you can, you can hear him, he can talk to his defence. Um, and to be honest, he's kind of, he's softened the blow of losing Bryson, but I know Samba had his critics and stuff, but Bryce Lambert's been my favourite Forest player for the last couple of years. Seeing him leave was really tough for me, like that was kind of like, of all the Forest players leaving, Samba really, really hit me the most. Um, but with Henderson coming in and being so brilliant, I mean, you've got to look at that and just say, look, Samba is a brilliant goalkeeper, and I think he would have been absolutely fine in the Premier League. By the way, I'm not having a lot of people saying, oh, you know, Henderson's like, you know, it, oh, I'm thank God for Henderson. But Samba would have been awful. He, he wouldn't have been. He would have been absolutely fine. And I don't think anyone, if you had asked people walking out of Wembley on today first. None of them would have said a goalkeeper is the priority, I don't think. So, but no, look, Henderson is an upgrade on Samba. Henderson's one of the, you know, the best goalkeepers we've had in a very long time. And he's definitely pushing to be England's number one. Tom? I don't want to turn this into a Man United podcast, but how Man United operate on a commercial level, I think it's more the name, more than anything. If you look at how they've operated in the last few years, they're more bothered about the name of insurance sales. So to be honest, David De Gea is probably going to get more shirt sales than a Dean Henderson. And even it's got nothing to do with form, even though I agree with Adam that Henderson um, does look the better goalkeeper out of the two of them. But at the end of the day, how Manu and the Glazers and all that um, commercial razzmatazz work, I think it, they're more bothered about the name and, spending a load of money on players, whereas they've got decent players in there you've set up or in reserve and they can't be bothered with them. Um, like with James Garner, for example, 
he played so well last year and he couldn't even get in for, in the Man U side in front of McTominay. And then they go out and get this player and that player. And then now he's at Everton now. And I think it's all to do with who's on the back of the um, the shirt rather than the actual form of the individual. I think well, that's just how Man U operate, really. And, um, and I think for Dean Henderson's career, he's probably done the best thing of coming here and obviously um, playing first-team football. And I think we're all benefiting from seeing such a, a top-class goalkeeper performing at such a high standard in a Forest shirt. It's It's been a long time and it's it has been enjoyable to see Henderson, some of the saves he's pulling off and the, the penalty saves in the in the big matches. He's really taken to being a Forest player and, and he's certainly stepping up in his Forest career so far. A quick one to you, Baz, uh, just before we wrap up on, on transfers and the squad. Looking at the players who Forrest already had before the summer, players who'd helped them get into the Premier League in the first place, and do you still see that they're, they're going to play a part in this season? I'm looking at somebody, for example, like Sam Surridge, and we didn't mention this earlier, but the, the Grimsby League Cup match, where he scored two goals in that game, looking hungry, looking clinical and can't get into the Premier League side. Now, is that an indication that we might, you know, might jettison some of these players who've helped us to get up? Or do you think that that there's a chance that players like Surridge are still going to have an opportunity to come into this side, particularly at the moment, because we're not scoring many goals? He's an interesting one, is Surridge, because I think he does, he has that, that clinical level to it, to his game, but he's not, and we, we, we touched on this earlier, it's, 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 he's not physical in, the, in that way. So, and I think that's possibly what we're lacking. So it could be one of those things where he, it's, it's not even like you could bring him on as a, a sub and um, uh, for him to change the game because of that. But, you, you don't want him to like miss out because he is is a, a player that Cooper favours, and he's obviously very very talented. Uh, it's just whether we can afford to let him bed in. If we've got the time to to allow him to do that, um, and it's not like um, yeah with with Yates and with with Worrell and, and with Johnson, yeah we can we can we we build the side around him but Surridge is a bit of an outsider on that front so it's it's going to be an interesting one to see where where he goes with that obviously as as Tom said earlier uh, Steve Cooper's got all the stats and knows how he's doing whereas we're just on the outside looking in so it'll be it'll be, it'll be nice to see where that one goes and back to Steve Cooper there's been some talk about his future this week and even more so today as we record given that there's been management movements in the Premier League. Thomas Tuchel has left Chelsea. It appears that Brighton manager Graham Potter is going to be the next Chelsea boss, which opens up the vacancy at the Amex Stadium. And some fans are already speculating that that Brighton might want to take a look at Steve Cooper. The question is, should we really be worrying about this? Because... Who knows who Brighton have got lined up to replace Potter if indeed Potter does leave? Again, is it just a, a case that we're, we're worrying or speculating 
about things that we don't really need to as as a fan base. Tom, I'll come to you with that one. I think it's more the fact that in the when four four two brought out their season preview, uh, there was a question in that what says who would you like if Potter does ever leave, who would you like? And in the I can't remember the guy who did it, but he says Steve Cooper. And with Brighton, the blueprint of how they play, they bring players in from the youth. Um, the buy young players for resale value, it does um, meet what Steve Cooper is about as a manager and a coach. So I think we've got, without knowing all the facts and nothing's certain, nothing's been agreed, this, that and the other, if he does go, you can see why they've gone for it. If Steve Cooper does go, you can understand because Brighton are more stable Premier League club than us because obviously we've just um, come up but I think the telling thing is he still hasn't signed that contract yet and if you this is going back years but if you remember what happened with Paul Hart uh, so it was the season after we got into the playoffs and um, Leeds were changing managers like no one's business and he was rumoured to take the um, Leeds job I think it was in the November of 2003. And he turned it down for whatever reason. And he carried on his work with Forrest. And we started to struggle. In the February, um, he got the sack. And he never really become a Premier League manager, apart from that stint when um, Portsmouth were in a downward spiral. So it, it's a hard one. Nobody's advocating for Steve Cooper to leave because of obviously for everything he's done for us. But... I can see why Brighton would approach him and I can see why Steve Cooper might think, well, they're more stable than us. But at the end of the day, we want him to stay here. But it's just how football is. It's like a domino effect, isn't it? Something happens and just a chain of events. And it's always somebody at the back end of the domino effect who always gets the sticky end of the stick. So we'll just have to see what happens um, on this one. But I uh, just think with the him not signing the contract, is, it is a bit of a cause of uh, concern in my eyes because that was mentioned at the start of the summer and he has been heavily backed and he still hasn't signed it. He's saying it's not a matter of concern, but when there's only a year left or till the end of the season, it's it's one of them, isn't it? And uh, with all the money what Forrest have given him to um, compete in the Premier League, it would be a bit... Uh, sad if he if he does part company with a club. I think what Forrest can do is look at Potter and the example that he's set at Brighton, where when he first went in there, they did struggle. They didn't massively improve on what they were doing under Chris Hewton, certainly points-wise and position-wise in the table. But he's had a few years in the job now and you started to build them up and they're, they're in improving year on year as a team and I'm going to leave the last word on this to our host Rich who says that the Potter Brighton approach would benefit Forest. don't get twitchy there were times when it looked like Brighton had hit their ceiling but they look great now that he has had a chance to implement his culture and methods which takes years not months Mr Maranakis so remains to be seen on what happens with Graham Potter's future and if indeed that has any knock-on effect on Steve Cooper and his position at Forest. But of course, Cooper is the Forest manager and he's preparing 
for a Monday night fixture next up away at Leeds. Baz, as a Leeds correspondent, by virtue of you live there, <laughs> what, what are you thinking ahead of this one? And and now the the situation where Forest have ha- are going to have nine days to prepare for this game and, and get ready for, for a match at Ellen Road. Yeah, it's going to be a pretty hard one to call. As as Tom says, it's it all depends on what these these next few days are like and how well Cooper can can drill the team in what he wants them to do. Um, Jesse Marsh has been he's he's kind of wavering with the, with the lead supporters, so it's it's interesting to see how they they go. They they seem to well they 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 don't like him particularly but if results are going all right then then they seem to they tolerate him as much as anything so if um if we can start brightly and get in amongst them then it could quite quickly turn in our favor but it depends on yeah us getting our game right and taking it to them but um yeah my prediction would be a draw to be honest and i don't think that would be too bad a result in the circumstances I always quite enjoyed playing Leeds as well in the championship because they they were quite energetic games there was always something happening they were frenetic and hopefully we get more of the same on Monday but with a positive result for Forest on top of that Adam just looking at the next couple of fixtures including Leeds so it's Leeds away on Monday then it's a home game on against Fulham the following Friday an away match at Leicester at the beginning of October, and then a home game against Aston Villa a week after that. On paper, they do look like very favourable fixtures for Forrest to have. What are you expecting or what are you hoping for from this next run of games? Um, if you go sort of game by game, the Leeds games can be really tough. I mean, Ellen Road's a hard place to go. It really is. Um Jesse Marshall, I really like. I think he's a really good coach. Um, I love their recruitment this this summer. Um, I really like him. Um, I thought I think Mark Rock is a really good midfielder. Um, Tyler Adams is really good. So to be fair, you know the way that Leeds are run at the moment. Um, you know the way that they nearly signed Gakpo as well. Um, and they go back from January. I've seen on the Athletic um, reporting that. So I like the way that they run. I think they're a good side. Um. The Brentford result was really strange for me. Like it sort of came out of nowhere. I really wouldn't expect them to get absolutely hammered by Brentford that the way they did. But these things happen. It's Premier League. It's, it's you know. But yeah, I think it'll be a tough game. I think that's a point there. And um, the Fulham game, I don't want people to get too distracted with how Fulham have started. They've started well. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you know they've looked decent. But let let's not kid ourselves with Fulham, right? Everything goes through Mitrovic. Everything. If you watch them play, if, if Mitrovic doesn't play, they, they don't. I, I don't even know if they've got a point this season. Like he, he's so 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 crucial to the way they play, but he's so hard to stop. You know, like we'll, we'll see what happens with him. Like if we can sort of try and put that extra effort into stopping Mitrovic, if we can really get amongst Fulham, I think we can beat them. Um, that's certainly what my prediction would be for that game. Anyway, is a win. Um, now, the am I missing one out? Is it Leicester after the Fulham game? Yeah, Leicester away. Yeah. So the Leicester game is completely contextual if Rogers is still there. <laughs> if Rogers is still there, I fancy us to go and beat them because 
he's very clearly, I've got a lot of friends that are less fans, obviously, as probably all of us do. He's very clearly lost the dressing room. None of the fan, I can't, you couldn't name a Leicester fan that still wants him at the club. I actually think it's harsh on him because he's brought in what, one player or two players on deadline day? Like, he's not exactly been backed, has he? And he's lost Wesley Fafana. You know, I, I do feel for Leicester's situation. Obviously, I'm sure none of us have brilliant feelings towards Leicester, but like, I'm not. I do feel for his situation. Uh, but if he's still there, I fancy to go and beat them. I, I, I'm not worried or scared about them in the slightest, to be honest. Um, so when you look, you're looking at that point at seven points. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, what was after the Leicester game? It's remind me Villa at home. Villa at home on the Monday night, isn't it? Um, again, that's that is very similar to the Brendan Rodgers situation. If Steven Gerrard's still there. As much as they had a decent performance against Man City, I think that's more an anomaly. I don't see that happening concurrently. I think ultimately they're very, very average. And that's a game that we can look at winning as well. So if you want to look really positively, the next like four to five games, we can look at putting some serious points on the board. In five games time, we could be sat here having a conversation going, oh, we're mid-table. What were we worried about? What was the problem? You know, so easily could happen. But like Tom said earlier in the pod, and like a lot of people have said, four or five games time, if you've picked up zero points or two points, three points, you rock bottom in the league and you're struggling, I'd back Cooper all the way. I wouldn't sack him. I wouldn't get rid of him as say if we go down. But the powers that be may not be as patient as that. So we'll just have to hope that things go our way. And I, I really think they will. And on that note, we'll leave it there. Thanks to Baz, thanks to Tom, thanks to Adam, and thanks to Jeremy for his sketch. And thanks to you, listener, for joining us. If this is the first time you're with us this season, please do leave a review and a rating in your podcast provider and do subscribe as well. All of that helps other Forest supporters find our podcast and listen to our content. We will be back with our match reports after the Leeds game. So thank you again for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.